Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. This episode is brought to you with the continuing support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers. I'm Marty Lachman and our guest today is Ed Gorin, a person instrumental in starting Fox Sports and making Fox the sports leader as it has become. Ed is the winner of an astonishing 47 Emmy Awards. You heard correctly, 47 Emmy Awards. And as we have done with our guests in the past, before we talk about your great success, I would like you to take us back to the journey, starting in Greensboro, North Carolina, and how your early years contributed to your future career and success. Well, Greensboro, uh, in 1944, June, uh, my dad was there in the Air Force keeping uh, North Carolina safe. Uh, after six months, I got run out of town, and we settled in Brooklyn, New York. At the end of the war, and even before the war, my dad was a sports writer, and living in Brooklyn, he was covering the Brooklyn Dodgers for many years. Uh, those were great times for a kid because every year we would go down to Vero Beach for spring training, and my friends during those visits were kids uh, whose fathers were playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, from Jackie Robinson Jr. to uh, Pee Wee Reese's daughter and others. And it was really a special time uh, to be around these athletes and uh, being in Brooklyn, where people lived and died with the Dodgers, uh, they were truly wonderful times. There was an iconic photo of you and your brother with Jackie Robinson that you've kept uh, for all these years. Uh, tell, what was that like? Well, you know what? I, Jackie's son and I, when, when I got to Fox, uh, an old sports writer who was covering the Brooklyn Dodgers back in the 50s sent me a lovely note, and he pointed out that I would be swimming in the uh, Dodger Town pool with his son and Jackie Robinson Jr., dot, 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 had to be the first integrated pool in the South. Uh I actually knew Jackie in his later years, and as I said, his son was my age. Uh, he had gone to high school in Massachusetts at a private school, and I would see Jackie a couple, three times a year at Madison Square Garden. At that point, my dad was a PR director for the New York Rangers, and I ran into Jackie, and I asked how Junior was, and Jackie said, well, you know what, he, he's really not much of a student, but I'm really proud of him. He's joined the military, and he's going to be in Nam. Uh, fast forward to the next visit. Uh, he's coming back from Nam, Jackie Jr., but uh, he was hooked on drugs. And Jackie got him into a facility in Connecticut. Fast forward to the next visit. Jackie, so proud. Uh, Junior not only went through the program, he did so well that he's working at the facility. Fast forward again, and uh, Jackie Jr. was killed in a uh, car accident on the Merritt Parkway. 
And when I saw Jackie, uh, he, he was almost in tears. And of course, his career was more than just baseball. I mean, he was carrying a message to the world. And he said to me, you know, almost asking forgiveness, he said, first off, why would I name my son after me? Why would I put that kind of pressure on my son? And not only that, uh, I wasn't the father that my son deserved. And he goes, Ed, you know, I was fighting for a bigger cause. And the one who suffered was my son. It's it, really that is a great story because you think of Jackie Robinson as this pioneer and always in control of the situation. In fact, that's why he was picked by Branch sure. Rickey at the time. But you know, behind the scenes, especially of many athletes, many entertainers, there's also a, another side that wasn't all success. Yeah, and uh, the last time I saw him in that story. Uh, Jackie was prematurely gray, he had diabetes, and about six months later, he passed away. Yeah, that's, uh, you, you just, our heroes, they, um, you know, they have problems like everybody else, and yeah. certainly that's the situation with Jackie. We have a, a saying on this show that everybody has twists and turns in their lives. Yours was almost a direct line to your career, though because your dad had a great influence on you. You were around it all the time. Uh, growing up in that environment, that must have, uh, it obviously stayed with you. Well, first off, if I uh, had my druthers, uh, I would have signed a nice bonus deal to play baseball. Uh, but when that didn't work out, uh, I had to go to a plan B. And uh, certainly growing up uh, around sports set the tone for later. In fact, even college uh, Marty Glickman, who was a uh, great sportscaster and athlete, uh, went to Syracuse University. And uh, when it came time for me to check out colleges, I was thinking about Boston U and a couple others. And uh, Marty said to my dad, no, 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 he has to go to Syracuse. And uh, even that was influenced by my dad's career. And when I went to Syracuse, of course, it, it, the Marv Albert had been there before me, uh, Dick Stockton uh, before me, and then uh, later years, a bunch of other broadcasters uh, at Syracuse, just a great broadcasting uh, school. And you get started now, you go to work in a, a, in print, I think, at the start, do you not? No, it, it, maybe what's confusing is I started in news, but it was at CBS News, and I was a copy boy, uh, making probably about 85, 90 a week uh, back then. Uh, and after a couple of years at CBS News, uh, one of the executives there came to me and said, Wait, what do you want to do in your career? And I said, well, it was either going to be television, sports, news, or advertising. And he said, well, I, he had come from a st CBS station in Miami and he said, would you like to go to Miami and uh, work news there where you'll be producing, reporting? And uh, it was sort of my graduate school. And they were two great years in Miami. The thing about the people at the uh, station in Miami, they couldn't understand why would I leave CBS in New York to go to Miami 
when they were trying to get to New York and be at CBS uh, News, but uh, really it was about really a, a graduate school education, two years in Miami. Your masters, as it were. Yeah. But now you go back to New York and you get into sports at that no, time with I CBS? Actu I actually went back uh, to work at CBS News uh running an affiliate sports feed, a uh, daily feed, where I was in charge of that and any of the uh, local uh, stories, I would end up uh, being the reporter, even going down to uh, doing a spring training tour. In fact, uh, I don't remember the year, but uh, Muhammad Ali was coming out of the forced retirement and I get a call while I'm down in spring training, whatever the camp was that, that day from New York, and they said, you got to get down to Miami, see if you can get an interview with uh, Ali about coming back. And I knew Angelo Dundee uh, from my two years in Miami, and I called Angie and said, listen, I'm coming down. Uh, you think it would be okay to uh, do an interview with the champ? And he said, sure, come on down. So... The Fifth Street Gym, where uh, Ali trained every day, uh, was up one flight of steps in Miami Beach. And I'm waiting for Ali to show up. And here's a kid wearing a jacket. And he's written uh, Muhammad, uh, Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. He's the greatest. And I said to Angie, who the hell is this kid? And he said, well, go over and talk to his mother. So I go over and talk to the mother, and she goes, well, my son is, really didn't have a lot of friends and uh, a bit introverted. Uh, so we started coming down to the workouts, and Ali has adopted him as uh, a friend. So all of a sudden, we're downstairs waiting for Ali on the street, and around the corner, here comes Ali, and this kid bolts to Ali, and Holly gives him a big hug, and arm in arm, they're walking down the street and into the uh, gym. Now, that would be an interesting story if that's all it was, but what really made it special, the kid was white. And back then, once Ali uh, joined the Muslim religion, most Americans say, oh, he's a, a Muslim, he's this, he's that. No, he loved kids of all colors. And a lot of people wouldn't have believed it. I always hear about Ali, and you were there at the start, or as, uh, the second start in his career. His charisma, his ability to, to relate to people, I hear when you were around it, there was, it was a force. It was. Here's my best Ali story. At CBS, we're doing a, a primetime Saturday night fight with Muhammad Ali and the heavyweight champ being of uh, Europe. The heavyweight champ was so bad that Bob Arum wouldn't allow the press to even see his workouts. So now it's fight night. I'm in the television truck. I go out for a little fresh air, maybe a cigarette. And here comes Ali with his entourage into the uh, arena. And I yell out to Ali, hey, champ, how many rounds is it going to go? And he looks at me and he goes, Ed, 
How many do you need for your commercials? I said, give me five. I can settle on four, but give me five. Well, he carried Jean-Pierre Koopman, the European heavyweight champ, for four or five rounds. As soon as he hit that mark, 30 seconds later, the fight was over. Wow. Well, that, that is a great story. Well, he, he knew entertainment right from the start. Oh, he was an entertainer, sure. He absolutely was. So now you're in CBS and you're doing, uh, you went to news, but now you're into sports. Yeah. You did the CBS Sports Spectacular was one of your first uh, jobs with CBS. and At CBS Sports, and it really took me around the world. Uh, we did a lot of shows, uh, sort of like a wide world of sports all over the world, uh, and uh, I, I spent most of those years either uh, on a plane flying somewhere or in an edit room cutting a show, putting a show together. Uh, but it went from that into doing, well, some of the events that I did, uh, geez, I did three years chasing dogs from Anchorage to Nome on the Iditarod. Uh, there was a new president at CBS, a guy named Barry Frank, uh, and he calls me into his office and says uh, he just signed a deal with a group of amateur climbers who are going to go climb Mount Everest. And uh, they tell me you worked in news, you know something about film. Uh, so I'm thinking of having you produce the show, but I'm a little concerned uh, physically, if you'll be able to do it, you're going to have to trek 186 miles to base camp. You're going to be in altitude. and everything. So he looks at me, he goes, uh, what kind of shape are you in? And I go, I'm not. And he goes, uh, well, what do you run a mile in? I go, I don't, Barry. In fact, I live on the second floor of an apartment building in New York. I never take the steps. And I'm usually out drinking on the east side of Manhattan until one in the morning most nights. So he says, well, let me figure this out. Why don't we, he said, I run the reservoir in uh, Central Park every morning. Uh, why don't you join me tomorrow, run the reservoir? And I could always run pretty good. And diplomatically, I let him cross the finish line first. I came across a few seconds later. He says, okay, you got the gig. You're on your way to Everest. <laughs> and again, we always talk about overnight successes. You have to pay your dues in any business for you to continue that success. So what else goes on at CBS before you end up over at Fox? Well, I went from... Uh, doing uh, anthology shows to doing live football, uh, basketball, final f uh, NCAA tournament, masters, uh, and then went from being a producer to being an executive uh, as a senior producer at CBS Sports. And in 1993, the fall of 1993, we get word that... Uh, we're in the middle of negotiations for a new TV deal with the NFL, and we find out that we did not get the deal after all those years, and that this startup company, Fox, is going to be doing the NFL starting in 1994. And fortunately, my contract was coming up for renewal, and I was literally a, a free agent 
if I so desired. And uh, I get a call from uh, a guy named George Krieger, who was at Fox, and he asked me to come out and interview uh, for uh, the executive producer and presidency. It wasn't president, maybe it was executive vice president, but bottom line is I'm, I'm pro executive producer. Uh, so uh, he said, when can you come out? And I said, well, I, I got to go to Dallas uh, to do a survey for the NFC Championship game. Uh, and I'll have an entourage of CBS people with me, but maybe I can figure out a way where from Dallas, I'll go out to L.A. and meet with you guys. So I would get in with my the CBS entourage into Dallas, and I run into the PR director for the Cowboys, Rich Dalrymple. And I say, Rich, listen, if anybody at CBS asks, I'm staying over to have dinner with you and Coach John's, Jimmy Johnson. And he goes, oh, that's great. Where do you want to go? I said, no, 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 no. Just don't worry about tonight. I just have to wait for them to leave for the airport to fly back to New York, and then I'm on a flight to L.A., and I uh, went out and met with David and uh, George, and three or four days later, I had the job. Uh, fantastic. But you're starting a whole new network. I mean, this it, is... It was, it was the most invigorating, creative, nerve-wracking year of my life. Uh, but I was very fortunate... Uh, a lot of TV executives come from sales, come from uh, law, the legal department. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be working with David Hill, who had the same background as I did. He uh, worked in news, he was on camera, he worked in sports, then became an executive. Uh, we spoke the same language. And it was just invigorating. Uh, as nerve-wracking as it was, uh, it, it was a very special time. And we didn't have a staff. I mean, we had uh, David, me, and uh, at the outset, and uh, David's secretary, and uh, George Krieger, who was a guy who was based in New York, but who uh, really did a lot of good things in uh, the process of putting Fox Sports together. And I read a comment from David that your love of sports is really what he felt was one of your great attributes, too. I mean, you this was your life. You really enjoyed it. It was your passion. You know what? It beat the hell out of work. <laughs> and any time I don't have to wear a suit and tie, uh, it, it's a good gig. Well, and again, if you're if you're doing what you love, sure, then the other the chances of your success, I think, are greatly enhanced. Yeah, it's, and you know what? One, one of the questions that uh, we were talking about was, uh, what do you look in look at for uh, hires? And one of the things you look for is passion and we had the passion and uh at, at fox sports and to be different uh, not just different for the sake of being different but how can we make the viewing experience even better for the fan and you really broke new ground at fox i mean there was a lot of things that happened and and talking about people you hire you were the one that found Jim Nance, as I understand it, in Salt Lake City, and he had to have those qualities, and, and the success he's had is amazing. Well, he's like family, and uh, he was about 25 years old. Uh, the executive producer at CBS Sports 
came to me and said, uh, I want you to tear apart the college football studio and build it from scratch because what we've had, I don't like. So we're going to do auditions on a Saturday in New York. And I see Jimmy's tape on Thursday. And I go, I don't know who this kid is, but uh, he's pretty damn good. So I call him, cold call. And I say, can you get out of your uh, TV commitment? He was doing the 6 and 11 o'clock or 5 and 10 o'clock news in Salt Lake City, along with jazz basketball. But uh, he said, sure, and I'll fly in and uh, just tell me what hotel, and uh, that's great. And looking back on it, this could have been a Freddie Couples goof on Jim, (laughs) for Jim to fly into New York and go, Wait a minute, where is anybody? Oh, it's couples, damn it. That's, what are you doing? Right. But he just lit it up as a 25-year-old. Uh, he was mature beyond his years, photographic memory, and just smooth as silk. Well, history suggests that uh, you made the right choice, for sure. And then on to, you know, to Fox, uh, one of the most important things in putting the organization together was uh, who you're putting on air. Uh, and the easy part was uh, signing uh, John Madden and Pat Summerall uh, as our lead team. But you need six teams of broadcasters for the NFL any NFL weekend, and then a studio crew. So Pat and John were the obvious, and that was, that gave us credibility. Our second team was uh, Dick Stockton and Matt Millen. Uh, Matt, who uh, was not particularly successful in Detroit as uh, president of the Lions, but was really a great broadcaster. And then to fill it out, I went to Hill and I said, you know what, these two groups give us credibility. And I have a bunch of veteran sportscasters who would like to join Fox, but I have a different thought on this. Why don't we try to find four young kids who are play-by-play announcers, who will be our future. So we call in and interview Kenny Albert, who is Marv Albert's son, Tommy Brenneman, whose dad is a legendary uh, baseball announcer in Cincinnati, Kevin Harlan, whose father at that time was president of the uh, Packers, and, of course, Joe Buck. And we had those four young kids. They referred to themselves as the Lucky Sperm Club. I think <laughs> Buck may have come up with that. And the, 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 the whole thing, at times you got to get lucky. Uh, the first trip that uh, I made with uh, the Fox Entourage and Rupert Murdoch was to the 1994 Super Bowl in Atlanta. And I run into Jack Buck and Carol, his wife, uh, and I was just walking around Atlanta with my wife. And Jack Buck comes over, congratulations, Ed, I'm so happy for you. This is going to be great. I have a theory that fathers don't push their kids on to other people about jobs. Can you hire my son? Can you do this? But a mother has no shame and carol buck looks at me and goes you know my son's a sportscaster i happen to have his vhs tape here uh patty my wife carol saying do you think you can get ed to look at this tape of my son and my wife goes 
He'll have to watch the tape first if he expects any action tonight. <laughs> so that's how brilliant I was in finding J- uh, Joe Buck. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me some Murdoch stories when you started with this whole Fox thing. Uh, I will, but then I want to go back to the studio group. But uh, every Monday, Rupert would have a, a lunch with the sports executives, the movie executives, the TV executives. There were about 10 people. And he would go around the room asking what's going on and whatever. And it must have been in September. And he looks at me and he goes, Ed, what's our best... Uh, matchup for the World Series, uh, the Yankees and Dodgers? Well, the truth of the matter is that the Dodgers nationally really weren't uh, as popular, if you will, as the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Cubs. So I look at Rupert, I go, Rupert, it could be the Yankees and the Santa Monica Little League as long as we have the Yankees. And he looks at me and he starts pointing and he goes, Ed, don't kid me. You know if that was the matchup, it would be a four-game sweep and we'd lose $50 million. <laughs> it was all about the business. Yeah. So get, I, I did want to oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. Um, getting back to your team, it seems to me you're covering sports, but you have to put together your team, and it never is one person. It never is, you know... Th- this is really about putting together a stable of people that's going to make this entire network successful. Yeah, m- most definitely. And uh, we hired uh, producers and directors uh, from all the, from CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN. Uh, and you want team players. Uh, you want people with a passion. Uh, but you want people to uh, get the big picture. And one of the things that you don't want, as I said, we do six NFL games on a Sunday. The lead crew is going to have 70% of the audience. You may be the sixth producer-director team where you have 5% of the the, uh, nation. And I don't need that group bitching and moaning that, hey, we're better than five or four. We're all fortunate to be doing NFL football for Fox. And I passed on some guys, producers, directors, who were more talented than people who I ended up hiring, but they weren't team players. Chemistry is important. Very much and so. And just like on a on a franchise of players, prima donnas really can be a cancer in the organization. Very easily because it, you, you have a, a production group that's on the road together every week, and it, it, it's like a, 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 a Tupperware party of, of a, where everybody is, yeah, they, they, oh, they're not that good, and we deserve better, and you don't need that crap, that's for sure. Well, and as a manager in sports, you are the manager of this team, and you have to massage egos. You have to make sure everybody feels that they're an important part of this team. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And uh, look, uh, going back to, uh, if you will, our studio uh, team, uh, and I'll start it off with Strahan, who was actually the most recent hire. 
But uh, I called Strahan, and he was still playing for the Giants. And there was a Super Bowl in it in Miami, and he was going to be down. I said, are you going to be down there with your agent? He said, yeah, why? And I said, well, I thought we'd get together. I'm going to bring Hill with me, and uh, I'm going to put an offer on the table uh, where you're going to know what you're going to be doing whenever you retire and how much money you're going to get. He goes, fine. We, I go to Hill. I tell him about this. He said, and David goes, is he retiring? And I go, No. Then why are we guaranteeing him a contract that may not kick in for two, three years? I said, first off, he's the right person to join this team of Terry, Howie, and Jimmy, who have been together like since grade school, and this guy is just moving into the neighborhood. How does that guy fit in? Strahan will fit in. And the other thing is, if we wait, we're bidding against CBS, NBC, and ABC and ESPN, and it's going to cost us more if we're lucky enough to even get them. So I tell Stray the deal. Now he goes into another season, and late in the season, the Giants start playing well. They end up in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, and they win a damn Super Bowl. Two weeks later, Stray's in L.A. with his dad and mom, military family, and his girlfriend at the time. And we're talking, and at that point, he said, you know, I still, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, uh, I said, well, it doesn't matter. You're going to tell me. And my wife says to Stray, do you ever get concerned about the long-term effects of injuries in football? And Stray's dad stands up and goes, son, this woman's making some sense. You got to think about that. Two weeks later, Stray Ann calls me and goes, I've just been on the phone with the Giants. They offered me a one-year deal. Seven million dollars. I don't believe it, Ed, but I told them I'm retiring. I guess you own my ass, and I guess you, yes, I do right now. So now, at some point, I have to explain to Terry Howie and Jimmy that we've hired Strahan before it becomes public. And I, I'm with all three of them, and they say, Ed, are we adding a half hour to the show? There's not enough time to put a And I go, boys, I'm the executive. You're the talent. Trust me. It will work. And, of course, it, it did. Uh, if you want to go back, I mean, the, the obvious hire for the pregame show was Terry Bradshaw, uh, who I worked with at CBS. But then we auditioned a bunch of announcers to be host of the show and to be with Terry and one of the uh, uh, auditions was with Howie Long who had a, a, was finishing up a Pro Bowl career a uh, Hall of Fame career uh, with the Raiders and uh, we have one guy who who's auditioning to be the host, and then next to him, Terry, and then Howie. And Howie was terrible. His audition was so bad that Hill looks at me and goes, well, that didn't work. Who else do you got? And I go, wait a minute. I got a problem, and I'm going to fix it right now. And I go down to the set, and I say to Howie, Howie, how many notes do you have in front of you? And he had like a book of notes 
And I go, look over at Terry. How many notes does he have? He goes, he, he doesn't have any. I say, exactly. This is paralysis by analysis. So you're going to throw the notes away, come back tomorrow, and let's get it right. So they come back the next day. Another guy is auditioning for host, and there's Terry, and there's Howie. And before we start recording, I go down to the set, and I go literally nose-to-nose with Howie. Well, not nose-to-nose. He's a lot taller than me. But I go, are you going to show me something today? I need you to show me something today. And I slapped him in the face. Bradshaw jumps out of his chair and goes, Ed, I didn't know. Road, roid rage. Well, I didn't know you're on steroids. Who the hell are you hitting? And I go, I think I made my point. Let's move on. And, of course, the audition was much better. So now we have Howie. And then you got to get lucky. And lucky in this case was that Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson would have a divorce. And I'm in New York with Hill. And th- this is just beautiful. Uh, and it tells you everything you need to know about David. Uh, we're watching the ESPN coverage of uh, the divorce press conference. And as soon as it's over, I turn to Hill and I go, I'll see you in a couple days. And he doesn't skip a beat. David goes, just check in from Dallas. If this was CBS, I'd be in a week's worth of meetings. What are you going to offer? How are you going to use them? Where are you going to just check in from Dallas? So now back then you had uh, telephones in the, uh, on planes in the cradle. So we take off. I take off, and I call Jimmy. And I go, Jimmy, uh, sorry about uh, you and Jerry, but, uh, you know, we always talked about working together. Uh, I'm uh, flying into uh, Dallas. How about dinner tonight? And he goes, Ed, not tonight. I, I just had my ass fired. This is not good. I said, well, Jimmy, I'm already on a plane. So we, I say, what about breakfast tomorrow morning? And uh, we met for breakfast. And I, he said, look, I don't know what I want to do. I mean, I, I got to get myself together and figure it out. And I said, take your time. And a couple months go by, and uh, I hear from this Rich Dalrymple PR guy for the Cowboys. And he goes, you may have a problem with signing Jimmy. He's saying he lives in Isla Morada. He loves the boats. Uh, he doesn't know if he wants to fly out to L.A. every week. So I said, let me talk to him. So I, I, no, I didn't. I, I said, you know what, let, let's see what happens. Jimmy calls me and says, Ed, I know you're not going to like what I have to say, but uh, I've agreed to a deal with ESPN, and I'm flying into New York tomorrow to sign the deal. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, what's gone wrong? And he goes, well, first off, I really don't want to have to fly to L.A. every week. And I go, so you're going to fly to Bristol, Connecticut every week? And Jimmy goes, oh, no, no, the people at ESPN said, I can do their football pregame show from my pool in Isla Morada. And I go, Jimmy... And I go postal on him. I go, what the hell are you talking about? I thought you knew something about television. What kind of chemistry can you have sitting on your lazy white ass in Isla Morada with a bunch of guys uh, in Bristol, Connecticut? It doesn't work. 
He goes, well, okay, but your people haven't come up with the money. I said, tell me what you are being offered. This is not a negotiation. Because right now, I got to go back to Murdoch, who's already squeezing one of my nuts. And here comes the next one telling him how much you want. But give me a number, and I'll get it. He gives me the number, and he says, but there's still the thing about flying to L.A. every week. And I go, here, real simple. Two weeks during the football season, you can be at your pool on the show. But that's it. That was the deal. He did a couple uh, the first year from his uh, poolside. And after that, and for a quarter of a century now, uh, he's always loved being out in L.A. with Terry and Howie, and uh, they've become very close. Well, it's a a team, like you said. But the other thing that you created, if I remember correctly during that period of time, there was a lot of people giving analysis of the game, statistics, all of those things. This was personality. Yeah. You know what? I I said to Hill when we were putting the pregame show together, I said, David, if we go out on the street and ask somebody, which morning show do you watch? Good Morning America, the Today Show, the CBS Morning News. And you ask them why. It's because... If you like NBC, it's Matt Lauer, Katie Couric. If it's ABC, it's whoever. It's about the people on the set because they're on camera. You're inviting them into your home. I wanted people who were likable, who were not just statistics and analysis. We were in the entertainment business. And uh, certainly David drove that message home constantly. I did too in my own way. And uh, that pregame show that started in September 1994 has been the number one rated pregame show every year since. And there aren't many TV shows that have their top talent on the show together for 25 years. And I think continuity is part of it, too, because now you become, they're part of your family, as you've said. You want to see the same people every week because you trust them. Well, uh, we we got lucky or stubborn. I mean, there are are other groups uh, that do pregame shows, and they shake up the lineup every two years. Well, that's because they're trying to catch Fox. Bring it on. (laughs) Okay, now you're doing all this stuff at Fox. It's got to be a whirlwind now. I mean, you've covered every event that there possibly is. When you think back on these times, what events still stick in your mind that this was just amazing? You know, the, I don't know if it's top five broadcasts, uh, but uh, let's see. Uh the BCS game with Oklahoma and Boise State. And Boise State, it was in Phoenix, Glendale, and it was David and Goliath, and Boise State wins the game on a fluke play, and it was memorable. The first Daytona 500 that we did, 
the NASCAR nation wasn't happy that Fox was about to do NASCAR. They were very pleased with the uh, ESPN coverage. And even uh, we were down in Daytona for two weeks before the 500, and Hill and I would uh, drive over in the morning to the uh, Speedway, and there was this one radio guy, and I guess the uh, FCC doesn't monitor radio guys in Daytona, but every morning he is ripping the hell out of Fox, and it was getting personal. What are those... L.A. homos, what do they know? And it, it got worse than that. I won't even give it. So here we are, and first impressions are lasting impressions. And we're doing the Daytona 500, and we have Daryl Waltrip as our lead analyst. And here, 10, 15 laps before the end of the race, Daryl's brother is leading the Daytona 500. And I hit a key to DW in his ear, and I said, DW, forget about being neutral. I want to hear what you're feeling. Bring your brother home. And it was magic, and it was emotional. And we were just ready to celebrate. So what a great event. And then Dale Earnhardt crashes on the very last lap and is killed. And it, it to this day, Waltrip and others, when they talk about uh, Earnhardt and that race and that accident, they, they come down in tears. Uh, the number, there was obviously any number of uh, Super Bowls and... Uh, I think it was before the Giants-Patriots uh, Super Bowl, and we'd done several S Super Bowls with the Patriots. I'm walking the field before the game with Bob Kraft, and uh, I think the Patriots were like 11.5-point favorites. And I, I said, Bob, do me a favor. Can you keep the game close at least for three quarters to help our ratings? And he goes, Ed, every time we do one of these things, it goes down to the last few minutes of the game. I wouldn't worry too much about it. And of course it did in the Giants in major upset. So that was great. The most memorable event for me was the post 9-11 World Series between the Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks. First two games are in Arizona, D-backs win that. They go to New York, game three in New York. I show up at the truck, and one of my producer tells me, hey, there's Secret Service everywhere. President Bush is going to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. And I said, well, get me to the Secret Service. Oh, he's going to be warming up because he's going to wear a flak jacket, and he just wants to make sure he doesn't embarrass himself in throwing that ceremonial first pitch. I said, get me the Secret Service. I want to get some footage of the president uh, warming up. We'll come on the air with that. I get the Secret Service guy, and he looks at me like I had three eyes. Are you effing kidding? This is post-9-11? No. There's, there, you, you, I'm not telling you where. I'm not telling you how. So he throws a perfect strike, a perfect strike. And Derek Jeter, where he was warming up, Jeter goes over, introduces himself to the president. president says, I think I know you. And Jeter says, where are you going to throw the pitch from? 
And a lot of people throw that ceremonial pitch from the front of the mound. And Gina said, no, no, Mr. President, you got to throw it from the rubber and throw a strike. And he did. So that set the evening off. And now the Yankees are losing in the ninth inning. And Bob Brenly, the manager of uh, the D-backs, brings in his closer, Kim. And the Yankees beat up on Kim and win the game in, in the ninth inning. Now it's two games to one. Game four, same thing happens. In game five, same thing happens. So now I see Bob Brenly, and we're uh, the series is 3-2. And we're back in Phoenix. And Brenly, uh, I had hired him uh, on our baseball crew. So I'm on the field with him before the game. And I said, Bob, what a great former employee. You care so much about Fox that you keep these games close right up to the last out because you're worried about my ratings. He goes, I'm not worried about your ratings. I haven't been able to sleep, but I have this dream that game seven goes down to the ninth inning. Yankees are up by a run. Tor Joe Torre brings in Rivera to close it out. And we do to Rivera what they did to Kim. And sure as hell, ninth inning, here it is, a one-run Yankee lead, and Mo Rivera comes in, and I hit the key to Buck and uh, McCarver, and I'm giddy. I'm going, guys, the Brenly story, the Brenly story. Let's tell it before. It, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out. And sure as hell, they beat up on uh, Rivera and win the World Series in the bottom of the ninth, game seven. Dramatic, very dramatic. I remember it. Um we also talked to you and I just recently about how things have changed now in media. Uh, we have the advent of social media. We have the advent of the, the Internet. Uh, sometimes it's better to be first than to be right. Uh, how do you see this affecting what's been going on and what do you see of the future? Well, first off, what you just said is so true. And I, I would show up at the studio on a football Sunday at about six in the morning. And uh, there was a, a, an NFL Sunday where my guys came to me and uh, there's a story out about Jerry Jones, whatever the hell it was. And I said, well, uh, where, did, where did you hear it? How many sources? And they go, well, it's on the internet. And I go, boys, I'll be damned if we're going to chase the internet. I'd rather be second and right than first and wrong. Now, if you call the Cowboys and get their side of it, and that, that's different. But I will never criticize you for being second because every, all these people who got to be out there with one source and get it out there, which is the world today, uh, they just throw crap up against the wall and some of it sticks and most of it doesn't. So, uh, and that's the world today. Uh, uh, the business has changed. Everybody has an insider. Uh, it's more gossipy. Uh, it, it is a different business and there are no secrets today. 
I mean, you know, I told you that I grew up where my dad was covering the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, back in those days, a Western road trip for the Brooklyn Dodgers would be to St. Louis and Chicago. And they would travel by train. It wasn't just the players on the train. The writers were also on the train. And the writers knew which players were alcoholics, which players gambled, which players were chasing women. They never wrote about it. And that's just the difference in the world today. Today, nothing is sacred, and it, <laughs> be careful what you say. And it is a lot about rumor, innuendo, and a lot of those things. Uh, again, salacious stuff sells, and that's what they continue to do. Big business. And now, Ed, if you don't mind, before we get into the future of broadcasting, we're going to have a short message from Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, and uh, then we'll be back and talk some more. You're buying more than a diamond ring, or you're buying more than a watch when you come to Leeds and Son. You're buying integrity. You're buying value. You're buying the best products in the world brought to the Coachella Valley with great care. Leeds and Son, the Coachella Valley's jewelry experts. And now we're back with Ed Gorin. And Ed, I'd like to talk a little bit about where you see the future of sports broadcasting going. To me, this is still the best reality show on television is sports. How does it look to you in the future? Well, I, th I think it continues to grow. I think we're going to know uh, the landscape may change uh, in the next few years as a new NFL rights deal gets negotiated, uh, a new NBA deal, a new baseball deal. Um, and that could change the players. Uh, does a Google end up buying Thursday night football? Uh, there's one thing that we learned in 1994 with uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, putting $400 million a year on the table on a four-year deal when CBS passed it about 275. What you learn is if you want to be in the game, to get in the game, you have to overpay. Google can overpay. Anyone uh, of the internet companies, a, a lot of them, if they want it. So I think we're going to start seeing some of that changing. Uh, and more and more sports channels. Uh, you have ESPN Plus, which is a pay service. Uh, Turner has Bleacher Report Live, which is a pay service. Uh, and... Help the uh, regional sports network business just changed uh, with Sinclair. Who would have ever thought that a company called Sinclair would own 21 regional sports channels? So it's constantly evolving. Well, and again, I'd like you to touch on that too with, with the purchase of Fox by Disney and then Disney selling off some of those assets. Um, that changes the landscape too, does it not? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, for, for Fox, though, their new primetime lineup for this fall, and I never thought sports could become this important to any one broadcaster, but Thursday they have Thursday night football. They have Vince McMahon's wrestling on Friday night in primetime. I never thought I'd ever say that uh, for a network. Uh, you have college football on Saturday night. 
And every other NFL week, uh, you have NFL football until 8 o'clock Eastern. So it uh, four out of seven nights a week, the new Fox network is really a sports network. Absolutely. And, and baseball, though, has really become more of a regional sport, has it not? Yeah, unfortunately so. Uh, I like national teams. Uh, in fact, uh, I was uh, with Adam Silver at some point, and he was talking about the NBA, and his goal was to do what the NFL has done, and that is the ability to create national teams in small towns so that it's not just reliant on New York, Chicago, L.A. Uh, you can have a team in Green Bay. You can have the New Orleans Saints. Uh, it doesn't have to be. And he's done that in the NBA uh, with, let's say, in Oklahoma City. Uh, who knows what happens uh, off of the draft with uh, New Orleans. Uh, so with baseball, it has become a, a regional sport. There are only a handful of teams that sell nationally. Uh, and it, it used to drive me nuts because uh, the, the, we'd live and die with the World Series ratings, and we could end up with Tampa in a World Series. I don't want any team from Tampa to ever be in a championship that I'm producing because I know our ratings are going to suck no matter how good the series is. Well, you also touched on something that I, uh, brings up another question to me. I continue to hear that Adam Silver is one of the best commissioners of any sport uh, today. Uh, what's your feeling about uh, the leadership of the various major sports? Well, they're all very successful. Uh, you know, Adam comes in replacing a legend in David Stern. Uh, and I think that one of the things, first, Adam is very bright, very likable uh, and decisive. So his first challenge as commissioner was the Donald Sterling Clippers situation. And he came out quickly and hard. Decisively. You bet and also gained the respect of the players and the other owners. Roger Goodell, uh, gosh, he, he, he's made a lot of money for his owners. And uh, at times through the years, I've had arguments with Roger, uh, but when all is said and done, uh, he's done a tremendous amount of good for his ownership. I think there are some issues through the years that if he looks back on them, uh, he probably would wish that he was able to resolve those issues more efficiently uh, uh, you know, with the Patriots and uh, whatever the, for the deflate gate. It took a year to get that resolved. Uh, so uh, I'm sure he would have looking back would feel, Jesus, we had to find a better way to do this instead of dragging it out for a year. Uh, Bud Selig was uh, legendary in, in a way. He was commissioner of baseball for uh, you know longer than anyone. And uh, now Rob Manfred comes in and 
you know, he has some challenges. Uh, you know, even the, the idea that the sport is regional, the, 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 there's so much tradition in baseball, and it, it doesn't always play in today's world. Uh, so uh, I, I forget the shortstop with the uh, Chicago White Sox uh, had a, a fabulous bat flip off of a home run the, uh, a couple of weeks ago. He's done it twice, I think. And people say, oh, that's not how to do it. You don't do things like that. Well, I think for the kids today, they buy into personality. Bryce Harper, M- yeah. Manny Machado, these are the people that are... And the other sports became more of a star system, if you will, especially the NBA. Most definitely. And, but the thing, the thing is, baseball has its stars. It has, right now, the greatest, to me, the greatest number of young, talented players. But you have guys like future Hall of Famers, Mike Trout or Kershaw. Uh, if they walk down the street in a lot of town, nobody would know them because they're not about me. They're not out there, uh, and you got to respect that. You are who you are. Well, and again, being raised as, as you were, baseball was the national pastime, yeah. and these records meant an awful lot, but that has changed, and I think that the length of the game, which has been talked about over and over again, and I'm sure by the media as well as anybody else, uh, in today's society where you want immediate gratification and constant action, it's a tougher sell. Well, you know, they, you're right about the length of the games, but uh, believe me, a three-and-a-half-hour game that ends up 7-6 or a college football game, how long do those games go on? I mean, they can get close to four hours, but if it's a 42-38 Ohio State-Michigan game, you're not walking out saying, damn, that game was long. You go, wow, what a game. It's still about the product. Yeah. Um, before I get into a couple of questions that I'd like to ask, um, I got to ask you, how did you get to Bighorn? Um, how did that all come about? RD. <laughs> uh, we, we moved out to L.A. in 94 uh, for Fox and... Uh, we would come out to the desert every once in a while, and at some point I s- said to my wife, Patty, uh, you know, we should look at some golf clubs out here. And the very first club we saw was Bighorn. Well, once you've seen Bighorn, nothing else matters. And I, we go back to L.A., and I realized that the guy from Hollywood Park, who I had met, is the guy at Bighorn. So... I call R.D. and I say, we had a nice visit. Love your club. We're going to come out in uh, uh, maybe a year from now uh, and join your club. And he says, well, I said, well, why a year from now? And I said, well, come on out now. And I go, well, I'm in New York today. And he says, well, Send Patty out here and let her see it again. And she came out and she calls me in New York and says, we just bought a house at Bighorn. (laughs) Only RD. And he said, if you don't like it, I'll take it back. (laughs) Well, Patty, she found Jim Nance. She made the Michael Strahan thing work. And now she's (laughs) the 
the reason, one of the big <laughs> reasons you're at Bighorn. Uh, we would have ended up here anyway. <laughs> no, the reason is that R.D. can, he's world-class Hall of Fame business seller. And there's no other place like it, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, let me ask you, too, who's been the biggest influence in your life? Well, certainly my dad. Uh, I mean, I've had executives. There was an executive at CBS News uh, who got me down to Miami, who was uh, very important to me at that point in my career. Uh, You know, influential. uh, There are a lot of people, when all is said and done, in certain ways, situation to situation. You know, uh, my wife, Patty. Uh, is uh, been a true partner, and you know, if you're doing sports, if you're working in sports, you're on the road a lot. You're on the road on weekends, uh, and it's critical. And I'm very fortunate to have a partner who really picks up the load while I'm saying, "Yeah, I'm working. I have to go to the Super Bowl." Well, I have to go to the World Series. <laughs> yeah, but take take care of that uh, hot water heater that just blew up. Your business and your life in sports is any sports fan's dream, uh, and you've got to live it. Uh, what was your What is your management philosophy as you put together teams? And you've mentioned passion, but but what else do you look for, and what's your feeling about that? Well. We're in the communication business, but trust me, uh, a lot of broadcasters and companies and executives actually do not communicate. Uh, I know any number of, let's say, football game analysts who go through a season and they're hearing everything's going, you're, you're doing great, you're doing great, you're doing great, and then the season's over, and uh, we're cutting you. Uh, there's a lack of honesty. So you start by being honest, communicate, talk to your people. We, David and I had an open-door policy at uh, Fox Sports where I didn't care if it was John Madden or a production assistant my door was open for both, although Madden would be a little more difficult. But <laughs> <laughs> um, also, what advice? What advice would you give a twenty-year-old Ed Gorin today? Learn as much as you can to be valuable so you may think that your dream is to be a broadcaster in the end a year or two down the road you may realize you know what i really would rather direct sports or produce sports uh you know there there are athletes ball players who can play multiple positions there are nfl players who play multiple positions they become more valuable well That's how you become more valuable. Ed, I really appreciate you coming by today and spending the time with us. It's been a a great experience for me, and I know the people that are listening to this podcast are going to go away with a greater appreciation for what you've accomplished, but also about sports in general. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you. 
And thanks again to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers for their support of the Bighorn Podcast.